Good morning, everybody. My name is Matt Cook, and I am the Assistant Director of the Center for Healthy Churches. Let me welcome you to the Changing Church webinar. Um, the goal of this webinar is to equip ministers and churches with hopefully relevant, useful information to help churches deal with all of the adaptive needs that churches are facing at, at this moment in time. That's the pandemic in some ways. That's the that's post-Christendom in other ways. Uh, we're probably focusing a little bit more on that second one this morning. Um, in a little bit, I'm going to turn over the hosting responsibilities to uh, Matt Homeyer, um, who is the assist, who is an assistant dean at Truett Seminary. Uh, before I do that, and he talks a little bit more about what we're going to do today, I want to thank all of the partners that make this webinar a reality. We are very grateful for Truett Seminary and the Truett Ch Church Network, who has been kind of taking the lead last week and this week and next week. We're grateful for New Matrix, for the Presbyterian Foundation, for the Church Network, for Gardner-Webb Divinity School, for Baptist News Global, for the Lake Institute, for Faith and Giving, um, all of whom helped make this webinar a reality in addition to the Center for Healthy Churches. So uh, we're glad you're with us this morning. And with that, let me turn it over to Matt Homer. Well, good morning, everybody. We're glad you all are with us today, wherever you are joining us from. Um, we have a, a great slate of panelists today and going to have a good discussion. Um, as usual, if you've got comments, questions, put them in the chat. We'll get to as many of them as we can. We kind of have a plan, but want this to be a conversation and helpful for all of us and the questions you're asking. So feel free to enter in that way. Um, our guest today, uh, Matt Cook, who needs no introduction um, and, and who has given the introduction. So do you can you introduce the guy who's given the introduction? But Assistant Director at Center for Healthy Churches, and Matt's a good friend. We're thankful for him and much of his hard work putting all of this together week after week and for the encouragement and help it's been uh, to many. Um, Sue Westfall is joining us. Uh, Sue is a lifelong Presbyterian and currently the Transitional Executive Presbyter. If I got that right, I think, for the- You did. Good. All right. For this Baptist, I'm learning. Uh, for the Presbytery of Shepherds and Lapsley in the heart of Alabama. Um, and immediately prior to this, she served as a program director for the Ministry Collaborative in Atlanta uh, and also served in executive positions for presbyteries in Greater Atlanta and DeCristo in uh, Arizona. And uh, before that, pastored uh, for 25 years. And we're thankful uh, Sue is with us today. And Jack Bodenhammer is currently uh, runs the Ministry Connections Office at Truett Seminary at Baylor University, um, where he served for four years. Jack and I worked together there at Truett, he does wonderful work helping students discern calling, helping them find places to serve, helping churches find uh, young ministers and old ministers alike, all generations of ministers to find well-suited places where they will thrive in ministry. Uh, previous to that, Jack was the pastor, um, senior pastor at a church in the Waco area, Elmont, Texas. Um, and uh, we're grateful for all of y'all to be with us today. Um, so we're in the second of third uh, conversation series on a next generation of ministers and having conversations that many churches are asking, uh, many older generations are asking, how, what do we need to know about young millennials and Gen Z? What do we need to know about uh, who God is calling these days to ministry? Who's responding to that? How are they being trained? How do they view the world? How do we find them <laughs> um, to work with them? What do we need to know? And this particular conversation, for lack of a better word, we tried. I tried to think of something more creative, but just couldn't do it, is on staffing. We talked about 
calling in a general sense last week. Today, in, in Baptist language at least, we're talking about calling to the church. Um, how, do we, how do we find these people when they're not maybe being trained traditionally? What do we need to know about them? What are some of the challenges related to this? So first question, and we're gonna, we'll answer Jack and then Sue and then Matt in order of what challenges um, are churches facing right now in hiring positions usually occupied by a new generation of ministers? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, I think, I mean, the obvious first answer is there's not enough of them. And, and that's it, that's probably part of why we're here is the calling out of the call and, and, and all of that process. I know y'all touched a bit about that uh, last week. And so I think that that informs, I think, this discussion um, to a degree. I think a big part of it is a lack of imagination on the church's behalf, that young ministers are desiring to be imaginative, <laughs> to do things uh, that may not look like traditional ministry, may not fill a traditional role, uh, something that, that has been uh, occupied by generations in the past. They may want to look differently, um, and it leads to kind of this varying degrees uh, of expectations and unmet expectations um, that can be troublesome. I think there's a struggle of asking the right questions um, about their own church. I think as, as churches think about how to staff, how do we know ourselves well? What do we really need? How do we actually best meet the world in our context? Who's the best fit for this position? Uh, asking those right questions internally, but also asking those right questions externally as, as they do have conversations with people. Uh, I think it's a real struggle sometimes to get to the heart of the matter and the heart of the person uh, and, and the connectivity there um, that we just sometimes ask poor questions. Um, and, and, and lastly, I think uh, the changing financial model particularly in the free church, uh, is, a, is a real hurdle um, for a lot of churches as they have to reimagine what it means to have a full-time minister or a part-time minister, what it means when you can't provide health insurance or you can't provide health insurance for a family. Um, I, I think that getting our arms around a, a different financial model is has been particularly challenging, not only for small churches, but large churches as well, that have to figure out something different in order to kind of empower the right people to do the right things in the right places. Um, and I, as I have conversations, those are, those are conversations that are really difficult in the church. Anything that's involved money, uh, I think it's particularly difficult, um, kind of in the free church, Baptist tradition, especially. <clears throat> Thank you, Jack. The um, issue of funding is not unique to, to your circumstance and your situation. It's certainly in my system, it's, it's across the board. There's a lack of it, a lack of financial resources. Uh, the Presbyterian system is... <clears throat> Uh, has in, contained several more layers of people getting involved than it sounds like the Baptist system does. And so you have district-wide or Presbytery-wide, you have commissions on preparation for ministry that train up people. 
and then you have a commission on ministry that helps helps actually place people and helps churches look for people. So I would agree that we do not have enough new pastors. Although having said that, in the last 18 months, since I've been here in this position, we've taken in 10 new pastors in this presbytery and all but one of them is under the age of 40. And you have to be aware that in the Presbyterian system, like if you're under the age of 40, you are a young new, in fact, in fact, you're probably a Gen Zer if you're under the age of 40. Um, but in any case, all but one of them would, would be uh, um, younger than the age of 40. And uh, we had to ordain three of them because they were just that brand new and that out of it, um, out of preparation. We have a, sis, a matching system that's a computer that you put in your own personal information form, the church puts their ministry form in and a system, a logarithm matches them. And so that does at least pull up some names that a church otherwise would not have any idea about that person. One of the things that um, I have encouraged our churches in order to get younger pastors and make a room, make a place for them in the church. One of the things that is on those ministry forms and personal information forms is how long, how much experience do you require of this candidate? And I tell churches, you know, put that number at zero because if you don't put it at zero, you really could miss a whole lot of people who could be very, very good. Um, you know, oftentimes churches think they need somebody who's had five to 10 years of experience or two to five years anyway. And I say, no, put it at zero because we've had some outstanding, outstanding young people coming right out of seminary where they have had gone right after seminary, uh, right after college. And they're really fabulous leaders. Now, you, they do need some support brought around them. Um, in order to function at their highest capacity, but, but they're already so gifted. Um, the financial resources, you know, it used to be that young clergy were often called to associate pastor positions. And there are fewer and fewer churches that can afford an associate pastor position. So that means that in my view, individual congregations need to begin to see themselves as teaching congregations where the congregation itself, the, the board of directors, the session um, takes on the <clears throat> task and responsibility of doing teaching, of teaching their new pastor how to be a pastor and what they need and what the church needs. Um, so that's one of the things that I encourage churches to look at so that they can get younger pastors. Um, and in fact, in terms of the funding model, and maybe I'll touch upon this a little later, the Presbyterian church used to have a category called the, an assistant minister. In fact, I started out as an assistant minister 
where I was just hired by the board, not by the whole vote of the congregation. And, um, and I didn't have to be on our Presbyterian's board of pensions. I didn't, they didn't have to pay that for me. So things were kind of streamlined. And then the church phased that out completely. Well, interestingly, now I see it coming back. We have a large church here who has just created two assistant assistant minister positions. And it's a way that they have a little more freedom as a governing body to decide, you know, what can we pay this person as opposed to if you're installed in a church, in the Presbyterian church, you have to be enrolled in the whole board, the whole pension board and health benefits, et cetera. So um, I echo some of what Jack said and then bring in a little Presbyterian perspective on it too. Thanks, Sue. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go way back in time, way back to the 20th century when I graduated from college. And a lot of the people that I... In my social circles, we were all going into to ministry together, headed on to seminary. Um, that was my world. That's So graduated from Sanford University, went to seminary in Texas. Um, Texas is the last place, by the way, that I still say that Christendom doesn't know that it's dying. It's still kind of alive and well in Texas. I don't know. Alabama could be right Fair there enough. with you. Fair <laughs> enough. All right. Alabama would certainly give Texas a run for its money in any number of categories. But, but, yeah. But... But it, back in the 90s, that was even more true than it is today. And so I went to seminary. And that's not to say that there weren't some non-traditional students, but most of us were, were traditional students, straight out of college, straight into seminary, um, young, naive, you know, inexperienced. And then I got to my very first church, First, first Baptist Church of Rosebud, Texas, and the other two people that were in ministry positions, both part-time at, at First Baptist Rosebud, were both bivocational in their 50s. Neither one of them ordained, um, neither one of them seeking ordination. And for me, that was my first kind of, uh, you know, awakening to this isn't going to be like I thought it was. This isn't going to be a traditional pathway forward. And as, as Matt was Matt Homeyer was formulating these questions. I actually decided I wanted to, I wanted to do a little bit of kind of a statistical examination of this question. So I'm going to share some information with y'all, kind of from my own experience and also from 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 some ATS statistics. And so, so what I want to show you is um, the, these are. Um, from the Association of Theological Schools. This is a breakdown of who's going to seminary. Now, total headcount, um, that's an interesting statistic. Um, the, by the way, these numbers hide something really significant because in about 2008, um, we, ATS schools hit almost a high watermark for the people going to seminary, and then a significant downward trend happened. Well, interestingly, I went into this looking at data thinking that downward trend had continued, but all of a sudden in the last two or three years, the numbers are going back up again a little bit. So that's 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 actually an encouraging sign, I would say, for those of us who are trying to figure out, are there going to be people preparing for ministry, young ministers to preparing for ministry? That's a, that's a question we have to ask and answer. The more important number is that bottom number. 
that entry-level head count takes out all the people pursuing doctoral degrees. So DMINs, PhDs, DMAs, all those kinds of things. So, but you still see that those numbers are still um, on the increase a little bit. So that's interesting. But one of the things that jumped out at me, I don't have time to kind of go through all of the racial demographics here. One of the things that jumped out and one of the things I would say to the ministers that are listening, especially in a position to help a church uh, extend a call is one of the things that's changing. And I'm speaking this maybe more into a Baptist context in the South, that the number of white men going into ministry is actually one of the only categories. It's the largest category but it's one of the only categories that's on the decline. So back in the 90s, when I went to seminary, that was the picture that a lot of Baptist churches in the South had. You find a young minister in seminary or straight out of seminary, typically a man. If that's the mental picture that you have of this is the person that you're going to call, what it is fair to say is there are less of those, um, significantly less so. In 20 years, that kind of percentage drop is statistically very, very significant. So that's one thing that I would want to draw your attention to. So what I did, in addition to looking at ATS statistics, I also wanted to look at my own experience. And so what you're looking at now are categories of, of people who served in the ministry positions that I pastored as, uh, as pastor of a Baptist church. Again, came out thinking everyone's going to emerge out of the traditional pathway, quickly realized that's not the case. Um, those numbers over on the right side of the column are what I want to draw your attention to. So 25% of the ministers that I've served with were not seeking any form of ordination, nor were they seeking to go to seminary. So um, the Presbyterian system, this plays out a little bit differently in my experience, um, they have people that serve in what we would call ministerial roles in Baptist churches that, that aren't people seeking ordination. Oftentimes, the, the, the term that I've used, and Sue, correct me if I'm wrong on this, I see people use the term director. You'll have somebody who's directing worship, but they're not a, in a pastoral role within a Presbyterian system. It plays out differently across de different denominational lines. Baptist churches, you know, upside of our freedom is we call people into ministry more easily. The downside is there's less requirements, less training that go along with that. So that's a, that's a mixed blessing in some ways. Having said that, I will tell you, it is a tremendous source for churches to find people most of the time within their own ranks that can serve in ministry positions. And, and, and one out of four of the, church, of the ministry positions that I was able to work with as a pastor were people that never, ever wanted to go to seminary or be ordained. There's also a group that started off as laity that decided they're going to go to seminary, but while they had already started a ministry position. So two of the most gifted ministers I ever served with started off as lay leaders and then came in as laity and then decided they wanted to go on to seminary. So I certainly would tell you that's something that you ought to pay attention to in the life of your church. Um, young people, or at least people who are young enough that they have the flexibility to kind of make that kind of career transition. That's important. Obviously, that 60% figure are people who were in seminary um, or know they were, knew that they were going to seminary when they started off in that way. So for me, I wanted to kind of ground my answer to Matt's question in kind of who were the people I had actually served with in three churches. Um, I'm not going to dwell on this. This is where these those lay individuals came from. They a lot of them uh, were teachers 
in middle school or high school or elementary school, depending on the position. A couple of them had positions. They were part-time working at a, at a university or a college and then were serving part-time alongside that role. Um, people who were working in nonprofit roles and then came into the church. And in one case, a person that got hired by First Baptist Wilmington first as an administrative assistant by my predecessor, who's on uh, uh, with us today, Mike Queen, who was so gifted and talented that she grew herself into a ministry role and then went on to seminary. So uh, incredibly impressive. Uh, she brought a lot of creativity and ingenuity into the life of the church. Now, I want to go back to some statistics real quick, because these are also some ways that this has changed over time, over the past 25 years or so. Um, I talked about white men earlier. You can look at these figures for 1986 and 1991, and part of what you can see, this goes to Jack's point that he made earlier, there are fewer traditional students going into seminary than there were a generation ago. That's not to say they don't exist. I'm gonna show you another slide in a second. But one of my big speeches that I'm making to churches in my work, <laughs> we're not, while we, while we all feel this sense of dramatic change, this big shift that has taken place in post-Christendom and most American congregations, the way that shift is taking out is not from one way of doing things to another big way of doing things in almost any trend line we're talking about, whether that's methodology in the church or the composition of the people of your ministry staff. What's, what's happening instead are a collection of shifts. And the way those shifts play themselves out in your local context needs to reflect its local context. So for instance, um, it's not like we have had a shift from primarily men to primarily women and people who go into seminary. It's not like we've had a shift from primarily white students to primarily African-American students. That's not what's going on. Instead, what you have happened is a lot of micro shifts that might be impacting your congregation in particular ways. You can see some demographic shifts. Let me, let me, let me go ahead to, to one more. This is not an apples to apples comparison of what I was talking about earlier, but this is the compositions, the total headcount enrollment by age and gender at all member schools. Well, you can look there, the largest category for people starting some form of theological education in the fall of 2020 in terms of age, the two largest are, well, 40 to 49, and then there's basically a tie between 25 to 29, which is what we would consider a traditional, in the old days, the traditional student, and 50 to 64. So there are less, there are less young people going in. That's not to say that there aren't, that's still a fairly significant category over on the, the left side of the screen. There are still a, a fair number of young people going in. So one of the obstacles that churches are facing in hiring positions usually occupied by young ministers are there are less, and in Baptist churches in the South, I would underscore again, there are less young white men going into seminary. So adapt the way that you think. What's the mental picture in your head if you're looking about hiring, if you're looking about calling people into ministry? Don't assume that you're going to be able to do that straight out of seminary. Don't be able to look within your system, look outside your system in places like 
the educational systems around you, uh, both secondary and higher ed, um, consider racial diversity. If you do that, one of the things that I will say to you is, in my experience, this goes again to Jack's point earlier, there is an idealism that is very present, somewhat present in Gen X, highly present in millennials, that, that um, the desire for churches to be racially diverse is a big trend line right now among young people. And so if you're willing to do the hard work of looking there, working through the issues, and it and there will be hard questions that you've got to ask. I have a good friend that they hired an African-American couple to come and serve on their ministry staff, and there were cultural differences that they had to work through, challenging cultural differences that they had to work through to make it successful. So, don't give up when it gets hard. Keep pushing through in the midst of those moments. So those are the obstacles. Those are some of the trend lines that I wanted to kind of put into my answer. So, Well, Matt, you get the gold star for preparation. My, you were a teachers loved you in school. I have no, <laughs> that was really helpful. Thank you, Matt. And, and it really, you answered both of our first two, which were transitioning to, of okay, here's some of the challenges and, ob and obstacles. What, how are churches then being creative about that? And you mentioned several things of looking to other sectors and helpful for that. Um, you know, I think uh, it's not just urbanization. I do, but maybe that is the most general category that's shaping a lot of this too. Uh, I had a student when I was in, in Jack's role a few years ago before Jack came on, a student come in and say, uh, you know, I really wanna serve in a very traditional church. And I said, fantastic. There's lots of traditional churches that need young people. I said, tell me about that. They said, well, you know, with two services, one that has like a band and some hymns, and then another one that's like Hillsong, really full rock band. And I, and I thought, oh, for most of our students that are more traditional, or I won't say traditional, younger, they grew up in a major metropolitan area. They went to a large church that had many staff and, and um but the number of churches that come to us, the majority are, are smaller, you know, single staff, if they can afford a single staff, they're largely rural. Um, and, and so, and anyway, we have differences that where the most of the people are, are in larger areas and larger churches where most of the churches are or not. And so there's dissonance between who's being trained and called in, in numbers and the, the opportunities available, which again becomes a bit of an issue from time to time. So let's let's transition then uh, briefly. Matt kind of answered this, and Matt, I want you to, if you have anything else to add at the end, please do. Um, but to hear Jack and Sue talk about what are some stories briefly where you see churches um, adapting and, and creatively addressing some of these challenges. Yeah, I, and it, a lot of it kind of dovetails with what uh, Matt. Cook already said, but raising up your own, that there is something uh, tremendously biblical about this model of discipleship that recognizes God's call in the people that are already in the pews, and then empowering them, training them, giving them the tools to do ministry. Uh, this is not a, hey, we need a volunteer for the youth group and throw them to the wolves. Uh, this is a, a a specific and regimented discipleship model. And I think the churches that do this are constantly raising people up. Uh, and, and that's intergenerational. Um, it, it does allow for those that maybe kind of 
have just that general sense of calling somewhere in the back of their their hearts and minds to be empowered and and they may go on and be a seminarian or or engage in some of that formal uh, education but I do think that there is a uh, a large population that if they just have the right people investing in them uh, we might see just a, a, a great awakening from in our own pews and and that and that is infectious I think that 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 can become the lifeblood of a church um, but again that's difficult too because that is that's letting go of the rain some and it is a revisioning of the model we've always hired people coming out of seminary um, or we've always hired white guys coming out of seminary uh, maybe we need to think that a little differently um, and it's also being comfortable in um, uh, just the transient nature of young people of what does it mean to grab a, a college sophomore and have two years of someone that's going to pour into youth through some tutelage and, and some growth and then set them free to do ministry in the entire world from there to be ascending church and grow comfortable in um, being a missionary model and not just a retention. We need someone and we need longevity. I think Sue said that really wonderfully. If Let's be a teaching church and and maybe this person that teaches second grade is a great children's ministry for two years. Uh, and then we're going to grab the new second grade teacher. And maybe uh, we can think things through that way. Another really, uh, I think, particularly creative solution is the melding of roles um, and, and being, again, recapturing some imagination that somewhere, somewhere along the way thought youth minister would be really great to minister to the, the teens of our church. Let's have a youth minister, right? That's probably within even my lifetime that that really develops. Um, and so what does it mean to kind of rethink some of this in our own uh, era right now? If, and I've seen this where we don't have the ability to have a children's or a youth minister. We need someone to do discipleship for everybody. Um, what does that look like? What is uh, justice look like? How do we have someone that's really engaged about justice? Can that still manage to minister to our families in a new and unique way that's fresh and engaging and gets us outside the church? And so I think the the, the shifting and melding of roles to be what uh, people are passionate about is where we're seeing some really dynamic ministry take place. I'd really piggyback on that, Jack, in terms of um, two things, two things immediately. One is that we have the phenomenon in our presbytery, just anecdotally, of, of all of our inquirers and candidates for ministry within our system. They're coming from about three or four different churches who see themselves as kind of calling congregations. They, they, part of their charism is to spot talent, spot potential call, and to really nurture that. So um, many of our people who are on the pathway to ordination are coming from these very, these, this handful of churches. The other phenomenon we have is in, my, in this presbytery, we have, well, in the Presbyterian church to speak to um, 
people who are called out of their called up out of their own. We have a category called a commissioned lay pastor. It's had several names, but that that's the most descriptive, where they are somebody within the system itself. They're feeling a call. Maybe the congregation is also feeling like they have a call. And so they are commissioned by the presbytery to be the pastor for that church. Um, they can't be the pastor for the whole church, but they can be the pastor for that church with full ordination uh, privileges, I guess. They do, we do require training. Presbyterians are a very educationally minded group of people. And so we do require a pretty extensive preparation for that position. But once they have the position, they are, they are really called up and they are leading very effectively. The second thing that's going on is <clears throat> that here in this system, we have in the Presbyterian church in general, but here in this system, we have a real dearth of, of African-American pastors. And so many of our African-American churches are now being pastored by Baptists or, or some other denomination. That is to say, they're going outside of the Presbyterian system in order to find um, pastoral leadership. We have some excellent pastors from, you know, Assemblies of God, from, um, from the Baptists. It's a, it's a situation that is grievous that we're not, as Presbyterians, growing up our own African-American or even either black, brown, or um, black or brown leadership, but we are at least open to, to using that leadership and taking it in the places where you seem to be doing a better job of it. Um, so yeah, those are three of the, the ways that churches are dealing. They're also, one other way is that they're sharing a position one position among several churches. And oftentimes these are uh, youth or they're combining their whole youth groups. We have five churches here in the Metro Birmingham area that all share, they have one youth group and the, they all staff it. All the pastors of those churches staff that youth group. So that's another way. I agree with the urbanization because um, you know, our largest, healthiest churches are in urban areas, but the majority of our 67 churches are in very rural areas. And it's harder to get leadership for those places. And that's many of those places where we're, they're calling up their leadership out of their own congregation to become commissioned lay pastors. That's helpful. Thank you, Sue. I, you know, I don't know if we have uh, Methodists on the call. I don't know everyone, but uh my friends within Westling as a Methodism seem to mirror what you're saying. They have more and more. And we uh, now place quite a few of our Baptist students at seminary in local Methodist churches as licensed local pastors where they have ordination rights for that church, but not beyond. And then that's the, the, uh, the benefit of a larger system with some authority where you can uh, 
help churches come together to combine a youth group and do things that um, the free churches don't have some of that uh, some of that ability to <laughs> to do so. We're not known for working together quite that well. We more divide and then start new churches that way. It's our best church planning <laughs> strategy sometimes. Um, Jim asked this question in the chat, which I thought was a really helpful question, because I, you know, as I imagine or as I experience some of these challenges, it's it's often in again those roles most associated with young younger ministers, youth ministry, children's ministry, some of these type positions, um, and and the other uh, Gen X pastors are are facing the opposite that churches are enthralled with younger pastors for many reasons. It's part of a wider cultural infatuation with youth. Uh, and I, I often say, you're kind of a young pastor until you're almost unhirable. I mean, it's uh, it's funny how long you can be considered a young pastor. As Sue mentioned, if you're under 40, that's incredibly young. Um, and so anybody wanna to speak to Jim's question? This is what he says, what's happening with Gen X pastors? They will often say, they're being passed over in favor of other younger pastors and the hopes for many reasons, I think, but in part the hopes that uh, young pastor equals young family. And we all know that is not a magic formula. I can tell some stories about that, but I won't. Um, but are y'all finding this true? Um, yeah. Any responses? So I'm tempted to turn the microphone over to Mike Queen, who can illustrate this point almost perfectly. Mike's on with us today. He was has served as an interim and at least four churches, he actually put this in the chat earlier, that the, the churches where he served as interim, all four churches called a 32-year-old pastor. So it just kind of perfectly illustrates the point, you know, nobody in their 40s, all and, and all of them fairly, you know, significant congregations, at least in terms of size and scope of ministry and things like that, to, to entrust that level of responsibility to a person who's 32 years old. Now, some of it has to do with the with some demographic issues. The millennial generation is a larger generation than than Gen X, and so there are more millennials. Just just numbers. There are more people in that generation. Another thing that is that is happening, I think, is that and it's and, and it it doesn't speak to the ones in Gen X generation that are still seeking calls, but. But part of what has happened in my generation, so I, I graduated from Truett Seminary in um, 1998. There were um, 37 of us in that graduating class. Um, from memory, about 70 of us were going to pastoral ministry, which is an enormous statistic. That, that was unheard of. And honestly, it didn't happen again, at least not to that extent at Truett. But of my generation, of my class of people, you know, so about 30 of them headed into pastoral ministry, there is only a small handful left. And the average age of the people in that class would probably be in, in the early 50s at that point. So ministry is hard right now. And so as, the, as G Generation X kind of is opting out, um, the, there's just less numbers there. And I think that even kind of says, all right, we're going to look down to a whole generation of people that are, that are kind of on the upswing in some ways. Now, the statistics tell us that while that may be true, generally speaking, um, and there is, I think, Matt Homar, to your point, a really, uh, there is a cultural preference for youth. We assume energy, creativity, and our ability to, to connect with young people are going to be tied to having a young ministry staff, what the statistics tell us is there's a lot of churches out there that no matter how enamored they are 
with that particular trend that they're not going to find those individuals either. So uh, I'd be careful about being too enamored with it. But yeah, I think we found that a lot of churches start out their search process with that younger demographic in mind. They get into it and and they expand that significantly. Um, And uh, but but it definitely starts that way. That's uh, Jack Sue. Any any response to that? You know, that it, it is a phenomenon. I don't, in, particularly in Texas, I, I think still they're looking for the the 45-year-old. Uh, I think that's still, so that would put you kind of on the, the lower end of, of Gen X. Uh, I'm right on the cusp of Gen X millennial. I'm, I'm old for a millennial or, or, or old, young for a, a Gen X. You know, and so I do think, Still, we see any church of pretty significant size and scope are kind of looking to that lower end 40s to, to 45 still. Um, hiring wise is an interesting thing because, again, there's just more 30 somethings um, that are still in ministry and, and looking. Um, but I, I haven't seen this as overwhelming. That being said, I was a 27 year old pastor. Right. It happens. And it, a lot of that is it is financial. It is any number of things and factors that come in to, to hiring a, a young pastor for the role. Um, so I, I do think there's, there's some give and take in that. Well, friends, thank you for this conversation. I mean, my kind of summary and, and, and takeaway are we all need to think creatively about the people God may be calling that might be in traditional forms and traditional places, and they might be in our very pews. They might be in the marketplace. They might be all around us. Uh, we need a uh, we need the Holy Spirit's guidance and <laughs> need to be listening to, to hear and see where they may be. And at times uh, calling them forth and backfilling theological education as we need to be, um, as we have opportunity. Um, panelists, any final thought of, OK, before we leave, this must be said. If you don't, that's fine. Um, but I thought I'd give us one more chance as we, we've covered a lot of ground today. I wanted to wrap it up. Any, any final thought? The, there's one story. I'll, I'll give a very short version of it. It goes along with something Sue was saying earlier about creative ways to think about this. There's a church that we work with in Philadelphia. It's part of a Lilly project. Um, it's actually a collection of churches with a, with a nonprofit in common called The Commonplace. One phenomenon that I'm seeing about churches finding ways to hire young ministers is Instead of beginning with the old idea of the our connection with people starts with worship and then heads to faith formation and then into service in the church and then into service in the world, some churches are partnering with nonprofits, hiring young ministers that are primarily serving in a nonprofit, but also serve a role within the church. Not a huge phenomenon yet. And the energy they get from that collaborative relationship with the nonprofit enables them to hire a young, idealistic minister. But you begin by service in the world and then work backward towards connection to the church. And I, again, I don't, to say it's a huge trend would be a misstatement, but it's a way to, to get at two things at once to bring a young minister who's idealistic, who loves and passionate about something inside connection with your system, but at the same way, sidestep some financial challenges so if you're interested in hearing more about it i'd be happy to talk to you i'll hang out afterwards actually and, and answer questions so 
I think all I would say is, is be encouraged. Uh, honestly, the uh, lean into the idealism as a, a self-proclaimed uh, cynic and, and all the things that we carry sometimes after ministry and we can look at young idealistic ministers and just go, well, they've got something to learn. And I would just encourage us rather to take on a idea of, well, we have something to learn. And because the gift of idealism and passion and energy, maybe in fresh ways that aren't really how we would think or do or act or wasn't the way we came up, uh, lean into it and see what fresh life there is uh, in it. Uh, be creative, be mindful, um, and be excited. Amen to that. And it's been a pleasure to, to talk with you all. All right. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Jack. Thank you, Sue. Thank you all for tuning in today. We will see you next week as we look to um, how do we, for this next generation of ministers, once we have them, once they're in our churches and in our churches, how do we encourage, how do we equip, how do we continue to help them grow? And we'll be joined by Aaron Moore, who's the equipping director at Concord Missionary Baptist Church in Dallas um, and, and other, other panelists. And so we appreciate uh, you being here and look forward to seeing you next week. Mike, it's good to see you. <laughs>